What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 125 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with astrophysicist Serafina El Badri Nance. Thanks so much for checking out my show. If this is your first time joining the Adult Education Podcast, I hope that you like what you hear and that you stick with us. Please follow the show so you'll be updated for all future episodes. I would also appreciate it if you would take a second to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're using or write a little review. And feel free to share the show with your friends. I find word of mouth is the best way to inspire new people to check it out. When I get into a conversation with people about what I do for a living, they always want to know how I got into radio. And when I dive into the story, most people are pretty surprised when I say that I went to college as an astronomy and astrophysics major. I don't know if I should be offended that they don't believe me. I guess maybe I don't give off that smart vibe. But yeah, it's true. When I was in high school, getting ready to figure out the rest of my life, I chose astronomy and astrophysics as my major. I was fascinated by the sky, fascinated by the universe that was around us. I spent my first semester at Villanova University in the major. There were 12 freshmen in the program and only one senior. That gives you an idea of how things work in that major. A lot of people don't make it through, and I was one of them. You know, I was interested in all of it at the time. I found the material fascinating, but it wasn't the only thing that I was interested in in life. I had also started doing a radio show on my college station, and I was spending most of my nights going to see live music at a variety of venues in Philadelphia. Ultimately, I decided that I couldn't dedicate enough time to studying for astrophysics, and I chose to follow the music and radio path instead. And, you know, here we are today. I'm telling you all this because my guest this week is someone that did stick with astrophysics and has gone on to do some incredible things in her career. This week, I'm speaking with astrophysicist Serafina El Badri Nance. I saw this book pop up in my email, and I instantly knew that I needed to speak with her, and I'm so glad that we connected. Serafina has recently published a fascinating book that's part science and part memoir. It's called Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. Through the book, she tells us fascinating things about the universe around us while also mixing in stories of her life from childhood through today. During our conversation, we discuss how she found herself going on this astrophysics journey, difficulties along the way, and my wild theories about the universe, which I have to say she was very kind to me about, even though I know she thinks I'm crazy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarafina El Badri Nance. Hi there. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much. Good. I'm so uh, glad to talk to you uh, because uh, for a short time in my life, I was actually an astrophysics major. No uh, way. Yeah. So when I saw this book come across my email, I was like, well, this is the person I need to talk to. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. I love this. This will be a fun interview. <laughs> well, I say for a short time because I made it uh, one semester in college and I didn't leave... I mean, look, it was challenging. Don't get me wrong. You know how it is. It's a very challenging thing to do and to study. Uh, but it wasn't that that made me leave. Uh, I just found a different path that I wanted to yeah. take in life, you know, but I've always been fascinated by astronomy and astrophysics. And I just was like, wow, I really want to hear this woman's story and how she how she came up and decided to take this path herself. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm excited to chat with you. And yeah, there. I I think finding your path is what it's all about, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think that's what's so cool about this book. The book is called uh, Starstruck: A Memoir of Astrophysics and Finding Light in the Dark. You you mix the science and the life in each chapter, and they tie together so well in so many different ways too. But it's cool to see how your life sort of reflects a lot of the things that you've discovered over time through your science. Thank you. Yeah, I loved the format of the book. I really bookend each 
life chapter with science sections that I think trace the evolution of the universe at the same time as I trace the evolution of my life. And um, yeah, there are a lot of parallels that I think, um, you know, I find meaning in, I find a lot of uh, beauty in, and I hope readers see that too. I know you talk about in the book how it was a radio program that first kind of got you interested in looking up and looking at the stars and the universe. But what was it specifically about that that made you so interested? You know, every time I look up at the night sky, even as young as five years old, I felt so small and was so enchanted by how big the universe is and how beautiful it is and how much we don't know and understand. And I think that radio show, you know, there's this ethereal music that plays and then Sandy Wood's voice comes on and she talks about what we can expect to see in the night sky that night. And I loved sort of that pointing of, you know, what is it that I'm actually looking at? This is a planet. This is a star. What is it doing? What does it mean? What is that planet like? And it sort of drew a picture in my mind, I think, of what's out there. And, you know, especially for a kid, that's so important to get you interested in in space and in science because astronomy can feel very far away. And it was a way of bringing it closer to home. And you touched on something, too, in the book that I I find so maddening, uh, but also interesting in the same way, because I've been doing a lot of interviews over the years with people that work in different educational systems. And one thing you hear about a lot is as girls start to age, they start to find themselves getting, I don't want to say pushed out of math and science, but they find different paths. They don't end up going with that. And, you know, you were in middle school, elementary school in the early 2000s, and you were hearing this message. And to me, I think it's not like we're talking about the 1950s here. We're talking about just 10 years ago, honestly, that people are telling you, oh, you know what, this isn't for girls. And I mean, granted, you grew up in Texas, which is a whole different world in a lot of different ways. But still, I can't believe that message was still being pushed on to people just that recently. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. And I think it still exists. I mean, I tutored young kids um, in graduate school, and even they were told that Um, you know, from a very early age that they weren't cut out for math and science and that they weren't, you know, meant to do technical fields like that. And as, especially as the world becomes, you know, more STEM focused, I think, you know, I was just reading an article yesterday about the most popular industries and how college majors are evolving to be more technical um, for better, for worse. You know, I think, no one should feel like they aren't good enough or that they don't belong in a field that is interesting to them or that they, you know, want to explore. And it's less about interest level. I think, you know, the common sort of adage is that, oh, girls just aren't interested in math and science. And the answer is no, that's not, that's not the case. What happens is that they are told, we are told explicitly and implicitly from a very early age that we are just not cut out for it. And that messaging continues and compounds as we move through our lives until we get to a point where we say, you know what, maybe I'm going to try something else or this was never for me in the first place. And, you know, every talk that I've had, you know, on this book journey, I've ended up speaking to people who have this exact same experience and they ended up changing career fields, which is completely fine. But I don't want people to feel like they have to do that because they don't belong. I just can't imagine an educator telling a child 
that they can't do something because of who they are. It just, it, it's just something that blows my mind. And I know it happens, as you pointed out. It's just, mm-hmm. it blows my mind. And I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter right now, and reading your story it makes me think, like, what kind of challenges is she going to have? What are teachers going to say to her as she grows up? And it just, it breaks my heart to think there are people out there in a profession that's supposed to lift people up and help them figure out what they're interested uh-huh. in and where they're going to go. And there are people that are holding people back in that same way. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And I think, you know, your daughter is very lucky to have you. I was very lucky to have my parents who sort of told me not to listen to that, right? And said, you know, you can do whatever you set your mind to. And it's so important to find a community or mentors who will continue to support you as you pursue your dreams and and elevate your voice and and continue to to find opportunities that that can help you succeed or at least grow and evolve. I think, um, yeah, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have, you know, the mentors or the community that I have. Uh, there were quite a few things in the book uh, that did ring so true to me, or at least I felt some sort of connection to them, I guess, because of my limited history, I will say, in the field that you're in. Uh, but one thing you were talking about was when you were talking about math and how you found yourself struggling with math and science at one point, And I'm trying to find the quote that I wrote down. Uh, you talked about how you could know all the steps to solve problems, but you also had to be clever and your anxiety would kick in and it made it so hard to be clever. And I just was brought back to a freshman calculus class that I had that was taught by the director of the mathematics department at my university. And this guy had two doctorate degrees from MIT. I mean, it's hard to find someone more well-versed in mathematics and he could give you all the formulas all day long, but he could not help you rationalize mm-hmm. it. He could not help you figure out why did this make sense? And that was always the way I learned. Like that's science I did great in because I could watch things happening. Physics, I had the top grade in my class. Like it was so, mm-hmm. it came easy to me because I could watch how it made sense. But the math side of it, I was on the lowest end of the class. So I'm like, I don't know why these letters and numbers make sense to me. Like it doesn't, I can't figure it out. Totally. Yeah. I think, you know, I experienced something very similar and I was talking to one of my friends uh, a couple days ago about how my evolution in physics started from, you know, my freshman physics class. I was so lost. I was faced with all of these, you know, numbers and formulas and I didn't know how they fit together. I didn't yet have the intuition to understand how they could work together in sort of a symphony. Um, It was totally foreign to me. And what's interesting is as the classes themselves got harder, I built up more and more of an intuition and the physics itself got easier because I was able to start to understand how things fit together, even if the concepts themselves were much more difficult to understand. So by the time I was a senior in college, I was taking, you know, physical chemistry and and quantum mechanics three, and those are objectively the hardest classes in my in my university for physics and I was top of my class and the reason is because I finally had developed this sort of I don't know intuition language ability to sort of synthesize things in a way that I couldn't have never imagined four years earlier I think a lot of people you know Part of it is they get disheartened and and say well this is too hard I'm gonna try something else or the physics or the math just isn't taught in an accessible way. I mean, I learn by seeing it done. I think, as you said, like once you see somebody do the steps, then I can emulate it and start to understand how I can apply it to different scenarios. 
But oftentimes that's incredibly difficult to do as an educator. And a lot of educators, you know, for time constraints or for, you know, other reasons, they, they don't do, they don't teach that way. And what ends up happening is that people get really disheartened and, and leave the field. You seem cool. Uh, you seem to have a pretty good personality. Thanks. I mean, I, I guess where I'm going with this is when I was in college, my freshman year of college, there were 12 of us that were astrophysics majors. There uh -huh. was one senior at my school that wasn't asked. Like he was the only one that made it through all four years. And, it, you know, the numbers dwindled by year. And I'm sure you probably saw a similar thing uh, at your school as well. There were not very many people with personalities like yourself and not that I'm comparing the two of us, but I have been told that I have a somewhat large personality as well. I didn't fit in with the group. And I think that was one of the reasons that I decided to leave to find a different pathway in life. Cause I just, I felt, I felt sort of uh, uncomfortable in the group. Like I felt sort of like I was, I was the oddball and I was sort of being pushed out for wanting to do more than just sit in the lab or wanting to do more than just be in the classroom. And I wonder if you had a similar struggle like that. Cause I feel like your personality is very outgoing and maybe that's changed over the years too, but you are, you're able to communicate, you're able to talk, you're able. And I just, and it's not something I experienced a lot with my classmates when I was going through that process. Totally. No, I, I thank you for saying I'm cool. I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my You're life. Welcome. Um, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I think I, I've always felt other in, in various ways. So, you know, I'm Egyptian American. I grew up in Texas. I already felt like I different and like, I don't belong. And then I was a woman in my science classes. There were very few women in physics classes. So I already felt like I didn't belong. I think there and were then, two in my know, class of 12. I think there were exactly, all, the other 10 exactly. were all guys. Yeah. In my quantum class, there were two women out of 50, right? Wow. Like it, I got so used to that feeling and it sucks to be candid. I mean, that is such an isolating, lonely experience. And I think my personality, you know, I, physicists have a bunch of different personalities. Mine is certainly, you know, I like to talk. I like to, you know, be outgoing and, and you know, have fun and, my life is not all about physics, right? Physics is something that I do, but I also do many other things. And that was true when I was in college. And so I had to seek out community elsewhere um, because I didn't really feel like I had other women that I could relate to in my physics classes. Um, so I ended up, you know, in college, I joined a sorority and I never in a million years thought that I would be in a sorority, but it ended up being so important because I was with other women, other bright driven, yes, women who like to have fun, but that was a way for me to, to feel less alone. And that was so important as I continued in my physics classes. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the few women that were there, whether it was math or physics or astronomy, we all banded together. I mean, we had to out of sort of like solidarity and survival to be able to sustain our careers and feel like we could continue to do it. Something else I love about you is how you are communicating what you've learned and what you know and the scientific world that's out there. Because let's just be straightforward, physicists not known for their communication skills, okay? <laughs> and I think that's one of the biggest divides between the layman or the everyday person and the scientific community is that communication. It's tough for someone to get out there and communicate the importance of things, communicate what's going on. 
And what you've really been able to do is capture that. Like through your personality, you've been able to capture that and make it interesting to talk about that and to hear more about what's going on above our heads every day in a way that other people, I just don't think quite have that. I think, I mean, I really believe that it is part of my job, part of every scientist's job to communicate the magic of what we are learning about the universe with the world. Science literacy is so, I mean, paramount just to, you know, exist in our world and be able to make informed, educated decisions. I think, you know, it's not just about astronomy, but it's about when we talk about climate change, when you talk about vaccines, when you talk about the pandemic, when you talk about gun violence, you start to need science. You need to to understand how, I don't know, like how statistics works and how we sure. can, you know, talk about these really important global issues. And I view it as, you know, paramount that scientists communicate with others and and bridge that divide. I think so often, as you said, scientists are sort of in this ivory tower of academia and, and don't cross over to, you know, everybody else. And that's too bad. And I view it as, you know, a personal mission of mine to do that because I think that is, that's what makes science meaningful. That is what is, it doesn't matter if we learn the coolest things about the universe, if we don't understand the impact on humanity. Speaking of the coolest things about the universe, a lot of the coolest things about the universe take place in part of the pun, astronomical distance from Earth. I've always found it kind of fascinating and interesting for people like yourself. How do you make it seem important to us that we should think about things that are 400 trillion light years away? You know what I mean? Like the numbers are so Mm -hmm. big, but yet you still have to make it seem like this is important. We need to know about this. We need to understand this. And I've never really understood how do you paint the picture in a way that makes Mm -hmm. that seem so important. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's a hard question because I I still struggle with it. But for me, what's interesting for me and what I try to communicate to people is we only know four to five percent of everything in the universe. Ordinary matter, you know, stuff we see, touch, taste, smell, all of that is in that four to five percent. Everything else is dark matter and dark energy. And we don't know what those things are. Those are complete unknowns. We know how they behave. We know that they exist, but we don't know what they are. And it is so important for us as a human species to have any sense of the human condition, to understand where we come from, where we're going, what it means to be here. Are we alone? Those are sort of fundamental questions that have been asked since the dawn of time. And astronomy is a tool that we can use to try to solve those and to try to answer them. And so I think, you know, my research is interested in measuring the expansion rate of the universe, which then tells us the composition and the fate of the universe. Those are huge topics that, you know, are grounded in, in my opinion, our sense of self. You know, we, get this sort of deeper appreciation for the earth, how precious it is, how much we should protect it. We get a deeper appreciation for each other, for, you know, conversations and meaningful interactions um, because we are, you know, humans on a lone planet and dangling in a sunbeam on, you know, a remote corner of the universe. That's beautiful and something we should treasure. All right. So you said where we come from, where we're going. So I have 
I have a crazy theory that I've never been able to tell to anyone of your stature. Um, so I'm going to put it out there and I know Great. you're going to, you know, shake me off here, but still I'm going to say it. Uh, I do believe in evolution and the way that the earth came together and the way humans developed and came up. But I do think there's this interesting thing, and you touch on this in the book when you're talking about the planets, and you say, I, I may be misquoting you, but you say Venus is sort of a cautionary tale for Earth because a lot of the things mm. that we see on Venus in the atmosphere are things that we are currently dealing with here on a much lesser mm -hmm. scale, but things that we're currently dealing with here. I have this theory that I formulated many years ago because you would see these cave drawings and these different things in other parts of the country that were thousands of years old, and they look like spaceships. They look like aliens. They look like and you're like how do these people know what this is thousands of years ago so my theory is venus once was earth and that's how we got here was because people left and found a new planet to you know take over and to live on and then venus mm -hmm. just completely went its own way but it's because of human life that destroyed venus in the first place and this is try number two and it feels like we're doing the same thing all over again i love that theory um <laughs> i think that there but but What's interesting is that there are absolute fundamental truths in what you've said, right? Like Venus is the cautionary tale. There are, the, the atmosphere on Venus has made it completely inhospitable. And whether, you know, we came from Venus, I think there are many theories that say we, we originated <laughs> here on Earth, but, but we can learn from that. And we can understand that our atmosphere, which is being rapidly assaulted by rising CO2 levels and, you know, our planet is getting hotter and, and you know, climate change is a, is a real thing that is already impacting many populations here on Earth. Um, you know, what do we do with that information? How do we learn from that and, and make educated, informed, powerful responses? And I think, you know, as we talk about space exploration and, and going to Mars or the moon or anywhere else, I think it's really important to remember, like, our chief number one goal should be protecting us here on sure. Earth and, and really saving the Earth. And, and I think to me, it's impossible to have like a real meaningful conversation about about space exploration without also acknowledging and and really prioritizing you know what what is going on here right now another thing that i want to ask you about because i i admittedly stopped my studying, if you will, of astronomy and astrophysics after I decide to leave and go into a, a different direction with my life. I still find it fascinating. So I read articles every now and then. But one thing I did not know, and maybe I'm just completely wrong, I feel like when I was growing up, we were taught about a certain number of moons for Saturn. You oh, say yeah. in your book, there's 82 of them. That is not the number that I knew growing up. Yeah. And and now I think there's more actually since, okay. I, since the book has been published. Yeah. Um, yeah. We are constantly finding and discovering new moons and, and different aspects of the moons. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think when I was a kid, Pluto was still a planet and yes. now it is not. And so it will you know, forever be a planet. I'm sorry. It will forever be. A planet. I agree. <laughs> I, I, you, we are on the same page. Um, but yeah, I think we are, we are constantly discovering even things that are in our solar system in our cosmic backyard. And that's so cool and exciting. I think, especially for the next generation of, of physicists and astronomers and STEM goers to be able to know that, you know, our universe is big, but even close to home, we are still uncovering, you know, sort of fundamental parts of our universe. That's so cool.
What is the, it's, I, I know of Titan. I'm familiar with Titan. What's the, en, Enceladus? Is that, am I saying that right? Enceladus. Enceladus. Yeah, I, I'd never even heard of that one before reading your book. Yeah, there are a lot of really cool moons that Saturn has. And I think Jupiter has really cool moons. There's, you know, Europa, it, it has, there's an incredible space mission that's heading to Europa. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these moons have, you know, possibility of, of life. And so, you know, instead of looking elsewhere in the universe, we can look in our cosmic backyard to see, you know, if we might be finding life sort of right under our nose. I was, uh, you mentioned earlier that you're Egyptian American and I was reading somewhere else about you, about your reaction when you were a child, what was going on in the country after September 11th. And you say that you're sad that your reaction at the time was to hide who you were to try to fit in. And I thought about that for a few minutes because I can't relate to that. I'm, you know, white American born and raised. Uh, I remember being on my college campus at that time, and there were a lot of students from Jordan that were studying nursing, I believe, at my school. And the hell that we witnessed them go through in that time uh, was wild because it was I was outside Philadelphia, close to New York. There was just there was a lot going on. You were in Texas, uh, so also another place that probably didn't make you feel super welcome all the time. And I understand why you, you, you're you sad, why you can look back and say you're sad, but I also understand exactly why you did. I mean, it's survival mode when you're, especially when you're a kid, like you, you want to fit in, you crave that belonging. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I, don't fault yourself for that. Like, I don't, I don't think there wasn't, I mean, I feel like you did the right thing for who you were at the time. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm really touched to hear you say that. It's hard looking back at that time. I was so young. I was in third grade when 9-11 happened. And um, I will always view Egypt as my home. And I have so much family over there. I feel such a deep connection and special bond to it. And it's hard because, you know, these are parts of my identity that I thought and I I, I believe are are intrinsic to me and make me who I am. And yet, to survive and to blend in and to not be, you know, racially profiled or discriminated against or just, you know, be able to move through the world in Texas, I had to hide a lot of that. You know, I asked my mom to stop speaking Arabic to me in public. It's a small thing, but we used to give baklava to our neighbors for Christmas. That was like our version of Christmas cookies. And, and you know, we had doors, doors slam in our face and we had to, we'd stop doing that. Um, and for, as a kid, you know, that, that hurts. That's sure. something that, I don't know, it, it's, it is sad. And I think when I say I'm sad that I did that, I guess what I really mean is I'm sad I had to do that. Sure. You know, I'm sad that that was the, the reality that we all lived in and that people who looked like me and, and who had names like, like mine, um, or other, you know, Arabic names were, really, really discriminated against. And, and it was a really painful, very scary time for a lot of us. Well, we can change subjects off of that because I do have a question about the cover of your book because it shows you <laughs> in what appears to be an astronaut uniform. And to my knowledge, you are not an astronaut, but is that something that you're shooting for? Is that your goal? Yes, it is. It is a dream of mine to become an astronaut. I did become an analog astronaut. So I lived um, for two weeks in a Mars simulation oh, right. um, on a remote volcano in Hawaii. And that was sort of the closest that I've been to, to being an astronaut. But my hope is that that experience and flying in zero gravity and, and uh, open water scuba diving and all of these sort of training 
things that I've started to do will um, hopefully put me on a path to one day becoming an astronaut. Well, this conversation is one my wife and I have had. uh, So I'm curious about your answer. Uh, The talk is that any mission to Mars will essentially be a one-way trip at this point. So if you decide to go, that's it. Say goodbye to family and friends. They call you tomorrow and say, would you like to be on this trip? What's your answer? Yes. Yeah. That's my answer too. My wife's like, you're the worst. (laughs) (laughs) My, my partner, Taylor, he, that was like the first conversation we had when we were getting serious. He was like, are you going? And I was like, yes. And he was like, I know. (laughs) My answer has changed. Now that I'm a dad, my answer has changed a little bit because I do have the child that I want to be around for as much as possible. But that was when I was younger, when I was a kid, that was my, I told my classmates, I want to be the first person on Mars. Now I found out later because of my asthma, there's no chance they'll ever send me, but I, uh, it was, it was my goal. So now we talk about it. I'm like, yeah, I'd go, I'd go. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, we're making space more accessible. You know, the first person with a prosthetic has gone to space. I think that, you know, who knows, maybe there will be a place for someone with asthma on Mars. Fingers crossed. Yes, yes, we'll cross our <laughs> fingers. I know there's so many great advancements happening all the time. Uh, I'm trying to get somebody on the podcast to talk to me more about these moon missions because I would love to learn more mm-hmm. about what's going on there. Primarily, I don't want this to sound mean, but primarily, why has it taken us this long and why is it this difficult after this many years? Like when you think about what we did in the 50s and 60s, why is it this hard to do it now? Like to me, it should be like, let's put this together and go tomorrow. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not the most qualified to speak on that, but I do think that there's a lot of politics that goes into these missions and, you know, fingers crossed. I mean, we're sending the first woman and first black man to the moon in 2024 on Artemis two. And that will be, I mean, that'll be completely changing the history of, of space flight. So I'm so excited to watch that happen. And hopefully there will be room for many more missions in the future. I don't only have you for a couple more minutes here, but I did see when I was uh, doing a little research for you that you were in Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. Uh, you looked amazing, by the way. And Thank you. That came a couple of years after your surgery, though. How did that feel to put yourself out there? I mean, you, you laid it all on the line there for Sports Illustrated. Uh, I, I'm just curious how you felt about all that. Yeah, I had a preventative double mastectomy when I was 26, and um you know, I chose to do Sports Illustrated for a couple of reasons. I think I wanted to, well, when I say I chose, I applied and then was selected. I, I didn't get the final, I, I, I was very lucky, but, um, but yeah, I think I, it was important to me because I was able to reclaim my, my body and my sense of self through that photo shoot. I mean, it was really such an empowering experience post scars, post, you know, frankly, amputation. Um, and then to be able to share that with others and and show that scientists can be, you know, women in swimsuits too. And, and we, you know, have all different sorts of passions. There's no need to put us in a box because we are multidimensional, driven, interesting people who can do a lot of different things. And I think when we talk about representation for future generations, you know, part of that is, is opening up. and and broadening the picture of what a scientist looks like. And for me, that was an opportunity to do that. Well, Sarafina, I love you. You're fantastic. The book is great. It's called Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. Where do people go if they want to find out more about you or follow along with your life? I am on all socials at starstrickensf. So you can find me there. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for the book. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Big thank you to Sarafina Elbadri Nance. Her book, Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. It's available now wherever you get your books. I really enjoyed this one. I had so much fun talking to her and hopefully we'll be able to connect again sometime. Also, thank you to all of you for listening to Adult Education. I appreciate your time. Until next week, be well.